Hi there. You're listening to the Hellenistic Age Podcast. Interview episode on the Illyrian Wars with Dr. Christopher Gribben. Hi, everyone. Today I have with me Dr. Christopher Gribben, a classicist and historian based out of Melbourne, Australia. Dr. Gribben is an expert in philosophy and religion in ancient Greece, but has taught a wide variety of subjects within the Greco-Roman world through such venues as his classic summer school out of University of Melbourne, historical tours, or his course, How to Argue Like Socrates, out of the Hellenic Museum. He has also appeared on the fellow Ancient History podcast, When in Rome, and I am glad to say he has joined our program as well. So, welcome and happy have you on the show. Hey, thank you. Your resume is pretty varied in terms of your output, ranging from academic to animation and architecture to philosophy. Can you give us some brief insight as to what led you down to studying the classics? Sure. Well, I've really been fascinated by the ancient Greek and Roman world since I was a kid. Trace it back to an exhibition, a traveling exhibition from Pompeii that came to, to Melbourne where I grew up back when I was four, in fact. I was taken along to that, and that really struck a chord with me for some reason. Uh, I don't know whether it was the the aesthetic or whether it was, you know, this this great story of the town being buried in time or what have you, but uh, something about that really resonated for me and, and got me absolutely fascinated in the ancient world. So that's something that always really stayed with me right through my childhood. When I went to university, I then did every subject I could that looked at the ancient world through classics and archaeology and philosophy and just uh, tried to you know, embrace that as much as I could. And classics really appealed to me. And I'd say that the reason that that appealed to me probably, or one of the key reasons that that appealed to me was this fact that it provided an opportunity to, to look at a variety of things, that it could cover off things as diverse as architecture, literature, myth, you know, history and politics were as a part of that as well. I've always sort of been interested in understanding the whole of a society and the way that things are, are interconnected and, and relate to each other. And I think classics really tends to, to welcome that approach. Even with my PhD, I was able to, to look at interactions between religion and myth and philosophy and, and the way that they all played off each other in, uh, in the 6th century BC. So I, find, I find classics tended to, to welcome that approach, and that, that was something that really appealed to me and, and sort of really got me in on it. And um, I've also found, uh, I think, sort of a lot of the, the, the public engagement, the community engagement type of, of work that I've done has really played into that as well, because that often gives you the opportunity to, to look at the, the big picture and to tell the big stories and to see all of these different connections. And that's something that I enjoy uh, about that as well. So the focus of today's show is on the First and Second Illyrian Wars, fought between the armies of the Roman Republic and the peoples of Illyria during the 3rd century BC. As a starting point, what do we mean by the term Illyrian? Are they related to any of the other peoples that dwelled within the region, such as the Greeks, Thracians, or Celts? So when we talk about the Illyrians, we generally refer to the people who were living in the Western Balkans between the Adriatic Sea on the one side and the Danube on the other side. So that really encompasses the area that today is covered by Albania, uh, Montenegro, Croatia, Bosnia-Herzegovina, parts of North Macedonia and parts of Serbia as well. So it's quite a, a large area. 
we know that in antiquity there was a lot of debate about exactly who the Illyrians, who, who was who was part of the Illyrians and who wasn't. There wasn't sort of a clear fixed boundaries that was all around the edge. People could either be included within it or, or without it. But essentially, that's the sort of the broadest possible scope of that area. We know that the people within that space had their own language group, Illyrian. That's an Indo-European language, so it's it's related to Greek and Latin and most of the uh, most European languages. And the people there were recognised as distinct from the other people around them by the ancients. As I say, it's not not that there was necessarily a clear uh, boundary uh, on the one side between Epirots and, and Illyrians or Macedonians and Illyrians or what have you. There was sort of something of a kind of a fade as you travelled from from one one group to another. But certainly, as far as the ancients were concerned, there was a sort of somewhat distinct group of people uh, living in that space. That having been said, while they were considered to be a distinct group, they weren't a unified people in any sense. Archaeologically, looking at the material cultures, we find that there sort of seems to be about five or six different groups within that space. And politically, they were broken down into quite a large number of independent communities or independent tribes. Uh, so it's had this kind of it's more of a, a cultural grouping rather than any sort of a political entity. In terms of what the Illyrians were like, unfortunately, we don't have any Illyrian sources to tell us about themselves. We have to rely entirely on the Greek and Roman sources. And they're not always favourable towards the Illyrians. In fact, they're generally not particularly well disposed towards the Illyrians. They tend to portray the Illyrians as militaristic and as primitive. This, I think, partly reflects Greco-Roman biases. But also there's probably some level of truth into some of these depictions, at least from the, the Greco-Roman perspective. Certainly we know from the archaeology that the Illyrians were less economically developed than the Greeks and Romans. They tended to live in, in smaller villages rather than in large cities. They had a mixture of agriculture but also pastoralism happening. And in terms of the sort of militaristic type of side of things, we also find that with the archaeology that men are often buried with, with weapons and armour, settlements are often on the top of defensible hills. So, you know, certainly military issues were a major aspect of Illyrian culture, as they were for most peoples of the Mediterranean at the time. But we also find archaeologically jewellery and depictions of musicians. And so, you know, there's, they weren't just a bunch of people living in huts fighting each other. There's certainly a lot more to Illyrian culture than that, though, sadly, most of that has been lost. But also, the Illyrians, they were uh, quite interactive with their neighbours. They had uh, trade networks with the, the Greeks and Italians. Those trade networks could be quite extensive. We know from at least the 6th century BC, we find Greek and Italian goods not only along the coast, but in, on inland sites as well. The Adriatic, which borders along the western side of the Illyrian area, we shouldn't see that as a barrier uh, so much as as a highway. I think that's the key way to look at it. That was something that enabled ships to move goods uh, and people backwards and forwards with with uh, a fair amount of ease. And the Adriatic's a relatively narrow sea. It only takes, with ancient technology, it only takes one or two days to sail from Illyria across to, to Italy. So we find then, to say, that they have a place in, uh, in the world there. They're interacting with their neighbours and especially with those uh, neighbours on their border with the people of Epirus and Macedonia where they tend to have both 
friendly and uh, unfriendly relationships over time. Within the narrative of the show, the Illyrians have really only appeared as enemies in the background of Philip II of Macedon, his son Alexander the Great, and the Kingdom of Epirus. You touched upon this in the previous question, but what relationship did they have with the Greek world? And was there any sort of exchange, whether in the form of Hellenization or Illyrianization, for a lack of a better word? Uh, yeah, as I, as I mentioned, uh, Epirus and Macedonia were neighbours for the Illyrians down to the south, southeast. So it's no surprise that there are battles between those different groups at different times. There are certainly a number of disputed border territories, and we have constant references to incursions from either the Illyrians into Macedonia or the Macedonians into Illyria. And that seems to be something of an ongoing problem uh, for, uh, for both groups. But we also find quite a bit of evidence of friendly relations between Illyrians and Epirus and Macedonia. One of Philip II's wives was Illyrian, so uh, Philip II of Macedon. We find also that Pyrrhus of Epirus spent some time living in Illyria as a boy. And we find a number of references to Illyrians serving as mercenaries for Macedonians at different times. So it's really, it's a, it's a, you know, it's a combination of, uh, of friendly and unfriendly relationships. And as I said before, the Illyrians weren't a unified people. So it was quite common that at the same time as you could have friendly relationships between Macedonia and one of the Illyrian tribes, they may be off busy fighting another one of the Illyrian tribes. So there's a whole lot of complexity that's happening there. So certainly in terms of, of Epirus and Macedonia, they are, the Illyrians are regularly involved with the, that world based on you know, moving backwards and forwards across the borders, uh, or with rather with the borders moving backwards and forwards across the space there. But the Illyrians also have quite a long relationship with the, the Greeks down further south. We know that the Greeks establish a number of colonies uh, along the coast of Illyria. This really begins in the, the 7th and early 6th century, where the Greeks establish colonies Epidamnos and Apollonia. Uh, those are a couple of sites which are in current-day Albania, and they are close to the shortest point of crossing between Greece and Italy. So that seems to be the major reason for the Greeks establishing colonies at this point, at that place, and that is to protect the trade routes between Italy and Greece. But later in the 6th century, we find the Greeks starting to move further north through the Adriatic in creating settlements there. They set up a colony in the 6th century on the island of Cortula, which is about halfway-ish up, uh, up the Adriatic coast. And they also establish a trading post at a place called Nerona. And Nerona is in current-day Croatia. And it's on the Narepa River, which is a large navigable river that goes inland into Illyria. So uh, that becomes quite an important trading post as well, because that provides them with access to some of the Illyrians that are in hinterland. So we find Greeks trading there. And then we kind of get a third wave of Greek colonization happening in the 4th century where we find settlements being created on more of the Croatian islands. 
So this is a very typical way for the Greeks to expand, particularly when they're colonising in an area where some of the natives may not be all that welcoming, uh, is that they set up colonies on these islands just off the coast where they can be relatively easily defensible. So at the start of the 4th century, we have two Greek colonies established on islands in the Adriatic, one Issa, uh, which is the modern island of Fis, and the other one is Pharos, which is the modern island of Havar. And these both become flourishing Greek settlements, and in fact, in the 3rd century, they end up sending out their own colonies to create further settlements along the Adriatic coast. So these Greek colonies really establish a whole lot of interactions between the Greeks and the Illyrians, and that's a mixture, really, of good and bad relationships. As I mentioned before, there's plenty of uh, evidence of trade between the Greeks and the Illyrians, but we also find in various things evidence of there having been mixed communities of Illyrians and Greeks living together and being part of the same community. But at the same time, there's also evidence that we find of conflict between the Illyrians and the Greeks. So however you want to look at it, certainly by the time we get into the 3rd century BC, there are quite a few Greeks living along the Adriatic coast next to the areas that were traditionally areas of the Illyrians and interacting with them in a number of different ways. While the invasion of Pyrrhus of Epirus in the 280s could be considered Rome's first official meeting with the Hellenistic world, it would be another 50 years before the Roman legions would head across the Adriatic Sea and into the Balkans for the first time, spurred on by one of the Illyrian tribes who lived there. What circumstances led to the First Illyrian War, and why did it take a group of overseas barbarians to bring Rome into contact with the Greek East? Was it aggressive imperialism, a defensive strategy, or a matter of circumstance? That's a really interesting question, because there's quite a bit of debate happening about exactly what got Rome involved with the Illyrians for the first time. Certainly when we look at the evidence, there's some reluctance on the part of the Romans. We're not seeing here the sort of aggressive imperialism that we see from the Romans in later centuries. But what's not clear and what's you know being debated by, by scholars is about how much the Romans were dragged in against their will versus how much they were eager for the fight. And you can kind of read the evidence or people read the evidence in you know, different ways and make different uh, make different calls uh, on that one. The story of Rome's involvement really begins with one of the Illyrian tribes, and that's a group called the Ardii. They have their, their homeland in what is today Montenegro and the north of Albania. And what happens is that sometime probably in the 240s or certainly by the 230s at the latest, they start expanding from their homeland and building up an empire. Some tribes may have joined them voluntarily. Certainly we know from evidence that some tribes were held by force uh, into that empire. And they, as that grows, the RDI build up the most powerful army and navy in Illyria. And they managed to stretch their empire from Pharos, that Greek colony of Pharos, the modern Havar uh, in the north, down to Corcyra, the modern Corfu in Greece, down in the south. So they've got a nice long empire going along, they're certainly going along the coast of Illyria, maybe going inland, we're not sure about how far inland the, uh, the empire would have gone. They're occupying, they've, they've brought together a number of different Illyrian tribes and occupying a number of Greek settlements. 
The RDI Empire is then also using its army and navy to conduct raids further south into Greece, all the way down, in fact, to Messenia, and seems to be getting engaged in piracy of, of ships that are, are travelling through the Adriatic. Particularly that South Adriatic is that, that key crossing point I mentioned before between uh, Greece and Italy, and that's a really important uh, trade route and a wonderful opportunity uh, if you are interested in piracy. So this growth in the, this particular tribe and this establishment of the empire seems to be the thing that gets the Romans involved. Exactly how that happens is not entirely clear because we have in our sources two different versions of what happens next. One version is that people complain to the Roman Senate about Italian merchants being attacked in the crossing between Italy and Greece and they ask the Senate to, to intervene to do something. We're not told who the people are that are complaining, but presumably they are merchants. They may be some of the merchants from the Greek cities in South Italy, which are sort of under Roman protection at this point. They may be other Italians who are also engaged in trade there. That's one version we have, is that this is because of the piracy. The other version that we're told is that the Greek colony of Issa, is either being threatened or has already been conquered by the RDI and appeals to Rome for help. Either way, the, the growth and the, the activities of this empire is what seems to have caused the problems. That's led to people calling on, on Rome for help. But Rome doesn't send an army straight away. The first thing that they do is they send a couple of ambassadors, a couple of brothers, Caius and Lucius Corincanius, and they send them to Tutor, who is the queen of the RDI. The ambassadors meet with Queen Tutor, uh, and we're told that that meeting, well, they, they meet with her to ask her to control the piracy, to, to bring some peace to the area. That meeting, we're told, is unsuccessful. But the key things that happens is that after the meeting, one of the ambassadors is murdered. Our sources disagree on whether that was by Tudor's orders or whether that was just something, some Illyrian pirates that happened to, to attack the wrong ship at the wrong time. But Either way, this attack on the ambassadors becomes a justification for war for the Romans. After this happens, they decide to send some troops. Ostensibly, the reason for them sending troops is because the Romans are outraged by the violation of the rules about the sanctity of ambassadors. But scholars have suggested that there may have been other motives going on as well, such as the desire to protect that trade route between Italy and Greece, or potentially it could have been about Romans looking to expand some of their political and economic influence in the Mediterranean, or at least in the Adriatic area, or potentially also it could be about individuals uh, seeking military glory. So we're not entirely sure what well, the debate about what's the, the actual underlying motivation, but certainly, ostensibly, it is this uh, murder of the, uh, the ambassadors. So what happens is that in 229 BC, the Romans send over a large military force to sort things out. According to the historian Polybius, who's our, our main source for this, the Romans sent 200 ships, 20,000 infantry and 2,000 cavalry, along with both consuls sent to, to lead the forces. The numbers are probably not reliable. Uh, most ancient historians numbers when it comes to armies and battles have to be taken with a, a grain of salt. But I think Clearly what's going on here is that it's a large force and the Romans seem to be engaging in a sort of a shock and awe type of campaign, ascending as, you know, as much as they can uh, to try and sort this issue out. 
Regardless of the motivations on the part of the Romans, what was the immediate response of the Illyrians and Greeks to the Roman intervention? How was the war conducted? So the, the war really begins with a character that we're going to be seeing a bit more of as this goes on, by the name of Demetrius of Pharos. He is a commander of the Illyrian forces which are occupying Corcyra. And interestingly, he has a Greek name and a Greek origin. He comes from that Greek colony of Pharos. But he is clearly well integrated into the RDIN Empire. He's trusted as a member of the military forces there. So that, that's quite an interesting, just as a side note, that's quite an interesting point in terms of talking about the relationships between the Greeks and the Illyrians and the extent to which they're combined. At any rate... Demetrius, as I say, he's, he's the commander of Illyrian forces that are occupying Corcyra, and it seems that he has fallen out with Queen Tudor. They've had some sort of disagreement about something, so he decides to enter into negotiations with the Romans. He sends a message to the Romans who are on their way, offering to surrender Corcyra to Rome, and then to become a guide to help the Romans in their battle. The Romans think this is a great idea, they take up the offer, they send their uh, fleet over to Corcyra, and Demetrius does exactly what he said. He surrenders Corcyra and comes on board as a helper, an advisor to the Romans. And the Romans, from starting down there, start making their way up the coast, fighting the forces of the RDI. They free the Greek settlements of Apollonia and Epidamnos, which are under attack. They fight the RDI a number of other times. We find uh, two of the Illyrian tribes that were part of the RDIN Empire, surrender to Rome, and the Romans keep moving northwards. Then they seem to, to take a bit of a jump. They go to the other end of the empire, of the RDIN Empire, that is, to the Greek island of Issa, which is being attacked, and they free that. And so, interestingly, what they seem to be doing here is kind of picking off the people that are have the least strong bonds towards Tutor. They pick off the Greeks in particular and some of the other Illyrian tribes that are not necessarily particularly invested in staying with Tudor. As to, to Tudor herself, she retreats to Rison, which is a, now a town in Montenegro. That's in the heartland of the RDI, and the Romans decide not to actually attack there, but to wait out the winter in Epidamnos, in one of those uh, Greek cities that they've uh, liberated. After uh, the winter's over, in 228 BC, Queen Tudor sues for peace with the Romans, and a treaty is agreed to. In terms of the treaty, we're told that Tudor has to pay a tribute to the Romans, that her empire is reduced, the Greek settlements are made free, uh, some of the Illyrians are given their freedom as well, and Demetrius of Pharos, who has been so helpful to the Romans, is rewarded by being made king of some of the territory. Not sure exactly how much. Certainly it seems to include his hometown of Pharos, but also some of the other areas uh, as well. And perhaps most important, the third part of the treaty is that there is a limit set to the movement of the RDI. So the town of Lissos, which is now in Albania, becomes the, the, the boundary, essentially, which the RDI are not supposed to cross. Depending on which source we look at, Either they, they're not allowed to sail more than two ships past that point or not allowed to sail any ships uh, past that point. But the, the essential factor of that is that it means that the Greeks should be free from interference and raiding by the RDI because uh, almost all of the Greek settlements, apart from those coastal islands, are south of the Lysos. So 
what we find, they've established this, they've managed to bring peace to the area. The Romans seem happy enough to leave Tudor on the throne, albeit with a reduced empire and reduced powers. And at that point, the Romans go home. They're not interested in establishing an ongoing presence in the area. They don't make it part of the empire. The Roman strategy at this point is very much what we might refer to as a sort of a police action rather than any sort of solid empire building. Perhaps the most exotic aspect of the First Illyrian War story is the so-called Pirate Queen, Tuta. How did she come to rule the RDI? And given the unusual circumstances of having a figure that might be considered a proto-Boudica, what were the attitudes of the Romans who wrote about her? So, it's interesting that the fact of having a woman ruler uh, may not have been so unusual for the Illyrians. We have references to other Illyrian women partaking in battles, and we have interesting accounts from the Greeks about one of the communities called the Liburnians. They live further up the, along the Croatian coast. In the 4th century, we have a, a text which is uh, which we refer to as, as by uh, Pseudo-Skylax, which refers to one of the Liburnian tribes as being ruled by women as a, as a normal sort of thing. And several Roman sources refer to the women of the Liburnians being um, sexually liberated and not confined to marriage. One source even tells us that they, they would sleep with whoever they wanted. They would then rear the children in common as far as the fifth year. And then they would bring together all the children when the children reached the age of eight. And basically they would compare the children to the different men in the village and try to figure out who resembled who the most. And whoever resembled the child the most was then assigned to be that child's father. Look, I don't know how much of this is, is true. There's a lot of uh, wild stories in the Greeks and Romans about the Illyrians doing all kinds of, of strange and crazy sorts of things. But certainly I think uh, there seems to be a consistent theme about the women not being as restrained as the women's are in the Greek and Roman world. And I think it's probably important to, to bear in mind that not everyone, not all the different people in the Mediterranean were as sexist as the Greeks and Romans, didn't necessarily have as clear divisions between male and female roles and all the rest of that. That's just a bit of background to say that perhaps it wasn't quite as surprising to have a female ruler for the Illyrians as it would have been for the Greeks and Romans. As to how she actually managed to, to come to power, we have two different versions of that in our sources. One version, well, both versions start off with her husband, who was the king, a man by the name of Agron, and Agron dies suddenly in 231 BC. And according to one version, Tutor just takes over in her own right. And according to the other version, what we're told is that they have a son together, a boy by the name of Pines, but he is too young to take over, and Tutor takes over as a sort of a regent in his name. So it's a bit curious. We're trying to figure out what's going on here. We have one, some sources that talk about Pines and some that make no reference to him whatsoever. And what's not clear is whether... Pines is being sort of glossed over in some of our sources for some reason, or whether in fact he was somebody that was entirely made up by later Roman sources in an effort to try to understand how a woman could have possibly been ruling. We're not really quite sure exactly how she manages to get herself into that position, but certainly she does manage to get herself into that position of being the queen. In terms of the way that she's depicted by the Greek and Roman sources, there's, to be honest, quite a bit of misogyny going on there. 
Cassius Dio portrays her as, as vain, as fickle, and as uh, having poor judgment. Polybius constantly portrays her as reckless, having uh, what he describes as, quote, a woman's natural shortness of view. And he says that she responds to the Roman ambassadors with, again, quote, womanish passion and unreasoning anger. So there's definitely you know, some stereotypes that the Romans have there, which we see in the way that they refer to various other female leaders that the Romans come in contact with in later times. And it's probably also important to note, particularly with, with the historian Polybius, that he's basically negative towards all of the Illyrians. He, he's, there's, there's, I don't think he has anything nice to say about any of them. And he often portrays them as being reckless. So uh, Tutor has this kind of double serve of negativity in his thinking by being both a woman and a barbarian, which together makes her into some completely crazy, sort of reckless, irrational type of being. With the war taking place on the back doorstep of the Hellenistic world, how did the Greeks react to the Roman presence? Were they seen as potentially useful allies, or were they considered one of the many threatening barbarian tribes? Well, one of the results that comes from the war is that Rome establishes relationships with several Greek cities along the Adriatic coast. So those places that had been either conquered by the RDI or had been threatened by them, Rome as the force that comes in and, and solves that problem and manages to establish these positive relationships. Polybius generally refers to these relationships as friendships. We're not entirely sure what those friendships involved or what obligations that they placed on anybody. They may have been nothing more than just a, a statement of good intention. They may have been something more in terms of you know, you won't help our enemies and we won't help your enemies and that sort of thing. Or even we may assist you if you if you need assistance. We're really not entirely sure exactly what it involved. But certainly with those Greek cities, Rome has established a good relationship and that's a relationship that will last for a long time. More broadly, the Romans following uh, the First Illyrian War send envoys to the Achaean League, the Aetolian League, Corinth and Athens to tell the story of the causes of the war, the outcomes, and the treaty. This is a, a big propaganda moment for the Romans. They're able to say, hey, look, these, these people were doing all these terrible things, and we managed to defeat them. And I think an important part of, you know, important thing underlying that story is the fact that just before the Romans sent their military forces over, some of the Greek states under attack from the Illyrians had called for help from the Achaean and Aetolian League. So the Achaean and the Aetolian Leagues, these are the, the major forces in, in Greece at the time, and some of these Greek, Corcyra and Apollonia and Epidamnos, these Greek places that were under attack, they, they appealed for help. Both of those leagues had sent some ships, but had been defeated by the Illyrians. So Rome's success in actually defeating the Illyrians contrasts with the failure of the Achaean and the Aetolian Leagues to manage the Illyrian threat. So, you know, there's a real propaganda benefit coming out of, out of that as well. Polybius tells us that the Romans received thanks from both of the leagues, and he, uh, he tells us, to quote, for they had freed Greece by this treaty from a various serious cause for alarm, the fact being that the Illyrians were not the enemies of this or that people, but the common enemies of all alike. So that's the sort of idea is that, you know, these are people that are constantly coming and, and raiding and the Romans have freed the Greeks from that. We're told as well that the Romans following this were admitted to the Isthmian Games by Corinth. 
all of this suggests that Rome's actions were well received by the Greek world, or at least that they were politely and diplomatically received by the Greek world. Of course, the end of the war and Tutus' surrender did not end the hostilities between Rome and the Illyrian tribes, and it would be less than a decade before the Senate would once again feel the need to intervene in the Balkans. With the fighting against the Celts of the Po Valley going on at the same time, and with the ever-increasing tensions between them and the Carthaginians, why did the Romans feel the need to involve themselves in another conflict? Was it due to Illyrian opportunism or bad blood left by the terms of the first treaty? Well, it all comes down to Demetrius of Pharos. Demetrius of Pharos was the, the Greek that had surrendered the Illyrian forces of Corcyra to the Romans and had been rewarded for betraying Queen Tuta by being given a certain amount of the former territory of her empire. So it turns out that Demetrius, who, who rises to prominence through his betrayal of Tuta, is not a particularly reliable ally. And what happens is that after the Romans left, he starts to expand that territory that he's been given. He incorporates what's left of the kingdom of the Ardii into his empire and starts attacking other Illyrian, also starts launching piratical raids into, out into the Adriatic and beyond. He establishes a strong relationship with Macedonia, sending mercenary forces over to Macedonia to help there. And in 220 BC, he sets off with 90 ships down to Greece to raid the Greek cities. He goes past Lissos, that boundary that was established by the treaty at the end of the First Illyrian War. He goes straight past Lissos, right down, right down the west coast of Greece, down into Messenia for raiding down there. And then some of his forces, in fact, go right around into the Aegean, where they start plundering various Greek towns and acting as mercenaries. Interestingly, he doesn't attack the Greek cities that have this friendship with Rome. He seems to leave those alone, and that's been used to suggest that he was not deliberately trying to provoke Rome at this time. He was merely interested in sort of getting away with what he could. It doesn't work. In 219 BC, the Romans decide to send over another force to Illyria. It's not exactly clear what the trigger is that gets the Roman in, Romans involved. Polybius attributes it to a desire to secure Italy in preparation for the Second Punic War, but modern scholars have tended to doubt that quite a bit because they, they feel it wasn't necessarily obvious in 219 BC that the Second Punic War was coming. Other Roman sources have suggested that Demetrius had attacked Illyrians with a, a friendship with Rome and that that may have been the, the cause of the, the Second Illyrian War, that they were uh, wanting to protect those, uh, those allies that they had made. Modern commentators have suggested that there may have been other reasons, that it may have once again been really about protecting shipping, about protecting that key trade route between Greece and Italy, and that the piratical activity was the major concern. And it's also been suggested that because part of the Roman settlement in, in 228, when Tudor surrendered, part of that had involved splitting up Tudor's empire. Instead of being one big powerful force in the Adriatic, it was a number of smaller forces by bringing that empire back together, re-establishing that, Demetrius has set himself up as a worrying power and sort of gone against the way that the Romans were hoping to manage things in the Adriatic. So we're not entirely sure, as I say, exactly what is the trigger point to get the Romans involved, but certainly it seems to be a very similar sort of situation of this large empire on the Adriatic coast causing various problems for the Romans and the Greeks. How did the Roman response change when compared to the First Illyrian War? 
either in terms of asserting further control or pacifying the region. Did the outcome indicate a difference in the way they conducted their foreign policy or their idea of imperial expansion? Interestingly, the Romans follow a very similar strategy. It doesn't seem to have worked the first time, but they're happy to give it a second go. What they do, once again, they send over a large force with both of the consuls. Demetrius, we know he he's prepared for the attack, and what he does is he sets up two key bases that he's going to defend. One is a fortress at a place called Dimale in, in modern-day Albania, which is supposedly impregnable. And then the other is at his hometown of Pharos, that's the Croatian island of Hvar. And again, the Romans adopt a shock and awe type of approach. They head straight for the impregnable fortress at Damali, they besiege it, and it only takes them seven days before they've in fact conquered it. And Polybius tells us that the, this so dismayed the enemies, it so dismayed the Illyrians, that envoys immediately appeared from all the towns surrendering themselves unconditionally to the protection of Rome. So all of the, you know, all of this, this uh, expectation was based on Dimali being impregnable. When the Romans show that they can do that, the Illyrians around can see that there's not much hope. Then what happens is that the Romans sail themselves to Pharos, to that other place that Demetrius has, has fortified, and they manage to trick Demetrius into, into fighting. They, uh, they only bring about part of their forces. They bring them out outside the city of Pharos in order to sort of tempt Demetrius to come out from outside the city walls. Meanwhile, they have a whole lot of their other troops hiding uh, on the other side of some mountains. When Demetrius brings his troops out to fight the Romans, they see the ones that have, have been hiding swoop across the hills and surround Demetrius's forces and wipe them out. Basically, with this, the Romans have destroyed the two key strongholds, and Demetrius himself flees. He heads off to Macedonia, he abandons his kingdom, and the Romans have managed to gain control there. We don't have as much detail about uh, the Roman settlement following this war as we do after the first one. We know that they demand some tribute from the Illyrians. We know that they set up a friendly Illyrian to be the king over at least uh, some of this area. And then, uh, very much like the first Illyrian war, they head home. Uh, once again, what we have here is more of a police action rather than anything else. They've gone in there to control the Illyrians when they act in ways that the Romans don't like. The main strategy revolves around getting friendly natives into positions of power in the hope they will do the right thing by the Romans. And the Romans certainly don't seem to have any interest in conquest of this area or of settlement by Romans in this area or in exploitation of the area, either the resources or the people or any of those sorts of things. All those things will come in later centuries when the Romans become more heavily involved. But at this point in the, the late third century, the Romans seem to be somewhat reluctant imperialists. And this is reasonably typical of, of Roman strategies at the time. Often the Romans are slow to get involved in an area and their first forays are often about dealing with problems and then leaving. And only after that's failed a number of times do they tend to take more drastic action. Certainly that's the way that they're operating in Illyria at this point in time. A year following the Roman victory in the Second Illyrian War, Hannibal Barca would cross the Ebro River and lead to the outbreak of the more famous Second Punic War. In some sense, this later conflict overshadowed the Roman expansion into the Balkans. But what were some of the legacies, both in the immediate and in the long term, that make the Illyrian War so important despite being often neglected, especially in regards to the fate of the Hellenistic world? 
There are three major legacies that come out of of the First and Second Illyrian Wars. The first is that the Romans have managed to successfully protect the trade route between Italy and Greece, at least for a while. That's a really important trade route for both parties in terms of providing economic benefits. And the Romans have not only protected that to enable that trade to continue, but also established themselves as people who can protect that trade route. That's an important propaganda exercise for the for the Greek world and shows that the Romans have essentially an unquestioned right to police that trade route. Nobody is objecting to them doing that. And in fact, in the, the second century BC, we find people complaining to Rome when there are pirates popping up and asking the Romans to do something. They've now uh, sort of taken on that responsibility and people have let them have that. It's been suggested that that may have been a role that was undertaken by Epirus earlier in the third century, but that there had been something of a power vacuum since the collapse of Epirus and that the Romans have now managed to fill that gap. So that's one of the important consequences. A second one is what happens with Demetrius of Pharos. As I mentioned before, after his forces are defeated, he flees to Macedonia. And when he gets there, he becomes an advisor to the Macedonian king. And as part of that, what he does is that he constantly encourages Macedonia to become an enemy of Rome. Uh, Polybius's theory is that Demetrius is just doing this as a way for him to regain his empire and in Illyria. And certainly in 215, Philip of Macedon signs a treaty with Hannibal, which includes giving Demetrius back his kingdom once they've defeated the Romans. Demetrius's advice seems to push the Macedonians towards conflict with Rome, which in the longer term ends quite badly for Macedonia. So that's another important consequence. And then the third legacy that we find coming out of all of this is that the Romans have now established friendships with a number of Greek cities in traditional Greece, in that, that in, on the Balkan Peninsula there. These will become useful in the future Macedonian Wars as uh, safe staging points for landing troops and, and getting them into, into the Balkans. But also, more generally, the Romans are now involved in Greek mainland affairs. They now have relations with the Aetolian and the Achaean Leagues, and this relationship with the Aetolian League is something that will grow over time, that grows into an alliance which gets the Romans even further involved in Greek affairs. So uh, this is really that the start of the Romans' involvement in the Balkans. And the thing is, as you know, you often see with the Romans, once they start to get involved in an area, that over time that they tend to become more and more and more enmeshed into the area. So this is certainly an example of that as well. With this last point, I think this serves as an excellent place to end our talk. And once again, I'd just like to say thanks for joining me on the show. But before we go, is there anything you would like to plug or provide so people can learn more about you and your work? Well, uh, 2020 has been uh, a bit of a hard year for for some of these things, uh, as I think I'm not the only person to have experienced. You know, there were plans that uh, didn't end up coming through, but I'm hoping to get things... uh, better uh, in 2021 uh, and beyond. All being well, I'm hoping to be leading a tour uh, along the Adriatic coast, visiting some of the places that we've been talking about today in uh, in 2022 with Australians studying abroad. Hoping to set up uh, some more uh, teaching opportunities happening in 2021 for those of you uh, in Melbourne. If you're interested in following what I'm up to and what I'm about, you can follow me on Twitter uh, at Classics Melbourne. That's probably the the best place to go. So the, the handle is Classics Melb, uh, Classics M E L B. 
And uh, I also have a website where I, uh, I put up details of what's happening, which uh, if you Google Christopher Gribben, you should be able to find without too much difficulty. I will definitely make sure to include links to Dr. Gribben's website and Twitter in the podcast description and in the show notes on my website for you listeners to check out at your leisure. But on that note, thanks again to Dr. Gribben. And for the rest of you, you've been listening to the Hellenistic Age Podcast. <laughs>